We've started a new marriage series entitled uh, Learning to Dance, which sounds strange in a church like ours, but thought it was a lot of fun. And uh, just equating some of the skills needed uh, for uh, learning <coughs> some of the same skills that are needed in marriage is uh, equated to dancing. And last week, David covered the issue of coordination. And uh, all of us know what it's like to be out of sync with each other, right? They, oh, we lost it, kind of deal. And uh, sometimes we can get back in the group very quickly, and other times it takes a while. Last week, David covered coordination and timing. This week, we'll look at complexity, add a little bit to it. So would you join me in prayer, and then we'll uh, proceed. Father, thank you <coughs> for this morning, and everybody here, and everybody watching online, and Lord, I pray that you would help me get through without hacking my way to death here, and uh, may you be at work in this message. It's one that we will understand, and it's one that I'm sure is not new to any of us. We'll be a review of many things that you've walked all of us through, and so we seek you for that in your name. Amen. All right, so dancing can be pretty simple, right? Or it can be pretty complex, right? If you watch some of the shows, you know, dancing shows, it's astounding what they actually pull off. And the point is, the more complex that a dance is, the more, times it ta- the more time it takes to master it. You don't just get out there and do it. Uh, let me use another example if dancing doesn't work for you. Uh, <coughs> usually during Christmas break or, <coughs> excuse me, a snow event, one of the things that'll pop up is uh, puzzles, you know, picture puzzles, right? Usually elicited uh, either great excitement or groans, depending on which family or which part of the family you are. Uh, And it takes uh, not only a trained eye to do one of these well, but it also takes great patience, right? You do a 100-piece puzzle, it's one thing. You do a 500-piece, it's another. If you do a 1,000, it's another kind of thing. And then also, depending on the color patterns they use, it can either be very easy to assemble or very difficult. Right, because it's very obvious, oh, there's, that's the part to the bird, and right, you can put that together. And, but um, if they blend it, it gets miserable. And uh, Abby, Mike, and I grabbed one of those and started to work on it, and we just had the hardest time trying to put it together. Uh, the first thing you do when you put a puzzle together is you try to find all the border pieces, right? Because if you've got the borders, then you can start from there and work to start to put the rest of the... Uh, pieces together. So, <clears throat> and usually the border pieces are not that hard to find because there's a straight edge to it, right? So you just look for the straight edge pieces, put it together. Well, Abby went through it, then Micah went through it, then I went through it, then Abby went through it again, then me again, and we still couldn't find all the border pieces. This puzzle was frustrating. And, um, and there was, we finally got all but one border piece, and we just could not find that thing, and we were looking for it. And uh, so finally, we just gave up on that and just started working on the rest of the puzzle, figured it'll show up somewhere, right? And eventually it did. Uh, but the rest of the puzzle was extremely difficult because of the blended colors. It, it was like you couldn't distinguish which blacks were which blacks and which purples were which purples and, and that kind of stuff. And we had two tables laid out with all the pieces and still made very little headway. And here's the thing. They were all there, right? When you look at it, it makes no sense to you. The truth is 
<coughs> all those pieces fit. It was all there. We just didn't have the eye to be able to see it. Um, and the question is, well, did you get it put all together? No. <laughs> so frustrating. What we had to do is we took the border pieces and the other parts that we did figure out, we put them in baggies, right? And then we threw the rest in the box and uh, we're going to have to put it together for another time. <coughs> My suggestion is that marriage is often very similar to this. Sometimes you just have to keep moving forward to make all the pieces fit. Now, when we talk about marriage, what makes for complexity? What makes marriage complex? Well, like in dancing, there's more than one move and more than one dance. Last week, David covered the issue of perception filters and the problems that those create when it comes to communication. Um, those are hard, and they produce a fair amount of consternation within a marriage. And the issue is that they're not simple in nature to either overcome or figure out. Have you ever just sat there, looked at each other and went, hmm, what in the heck is this, right? And, and literally, neither one of you can figure it out. That is often what happens. I believe that these are a result of the original fall from the Garden of Eden. You can trace it all the way back to there. And the reality is we will have to navigate around and through them until his return, right? It doesn't get taken away till then. Um, there will be a time when that won't be a problem, so that'll be good. <clears throat> but as I was saying, what makes all this so difficult is that there isn't just one layer. If there was just one thing, all you had to do is fix that one thing, that would be fairly easy. But there's several things. There's several layers which make marriage difficult. Or as they say in the movies, it's complicated, right? Uh, it, it gets doubled up on itself in some ways. And what are these added layers? Well, I came upon a, a <coughs> book couple of years ago, well, actually a few years ago, that was the PhD synthesis of two guys working in this area. Now, it's not a Christian book in that sense, but it proved to be incredibly insightful. And the question they were asking are, was, what are the major battles of marriage? And uh, the book is called The Seven Basic Quarrels of Marriage by William Belcher and Robbie McCauley. And they listed the seven basic quarrels of marriage as this. We've looked at these before, but I think it's good for a review. Gender, loyalties, money, sex, power, privacy, and children. All right, let's just go through each of those. Gender is the fact that men and women are different. You've noticed that, right? right? And uh, usually we attribute that to the physical differences, but it's far more than that. Uh, men, when we're babies in the womb, we get that testosterone bath, which means literally the hemispheres get separated in our brain. And so we do not think like women think. Just in case you hadn't noticed, I will fill you in on that, all right? And uh, you can see this, for example, in all kinds of things. Men stereotypically tend to be monotask, okay? They, they lock on one thing, they get very frustrated if you give them three or four things to do at the same time, right? Monotask, their goal is to nail it, kill it, done, I'm successful, okay? Gals are very good at multitasking. Right? And so they can go around and, and do all kinds of things all at the same time. I remember one time when we, in our old house, the garage was made into a family room. And so I was in the far corner watching a, a TV and, and this movie came on, a, a trailer for a movie. I thought, oh, that'd be a good movie to go see. Pam's in the kitchen making dinner, talking to her mom on the phone. Kayla's hanging on her ankle. So it's a few years back. And from the corner of the, 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 from the kitchen, I hear her say, that's a bad movie. 
I got irritated right away. How in the world, she's making dinner, Kayla's chewing on her ankle, she's talking to her mom on the phone, she can't even see or hear the TV, how in the world does she know it's a bad movie? I said, why is it a bad movie? I don't know, it's a bad movie. Ugh. So we went to the movie. It was a bad movie. Okay. There's just basic differences in terms of gender that uh, over time you start to realize. And here's the problem when we get married. We think, oh, well, yeah, we're different, but the longer we live together, the more we'll become alike. Right? <laughs> the more you live together, the more different you realize you are. Right? And so that is where we need the Holy Spirit to bring reconciliation to that because the blends are fantastic when they work together. They become very difficult if it always becomes combative. And so gender's a problem. Loyalties. Loyalties are the un, um, unlisted rules that exist in your relationship that you don't know are rules. Okay? In other words, there are rules when you get married that you didn't know were there. They're hidden. They're secret. Um, one time I was out mowing the lawn and I came in and uh, Pam, and I thought, what, did I bring a snake in with me or what's going on? And, and I, she's pointing and I look and I look at my shoes and I think, shoes, yeah, what's the... And, and she says, you, you, you're wearing shoes? Well, yeah, I just want to get a drink of water on our hardwood floors that we just put in. Well, yeah, then you just take a broom, you sweep it out and, you know, kind of deal. No, you're going to wreck our hardwood floors. That's not going to wreck the hardwood floors. It's going to wreck... You're, besides, you're bringing grass in with it. I said, well, I grew up on a farm in Wisconsin. We never took our shoes at all to come in the house. Well, you're not on a farm in Wisconsin anymore. Get used to it. Okay. Guess who won that battle? She did. We don't wear shoes in our house, all right? That was totally, like, I looked like a Neanderthal to her, right? Like, what kind of unthinking troglodyte was I to come stomping in with my shoes from the outside and bring them into our nice, clean house? <clears throat> now, I'm, I'm using Pam and I, but uh, you're laughing. You know why you're laughing, right? Because we all have these similar kind of stories. The thing is, there are a lot of these that exist that also include in-laws, include family dates, include holidays that we've just come through that you pile these all into. Several, these are very surprising. A third one is money, okay? <clears throat> the number one thing over which couples fight is money, but when they're fighting about money, they're not fighting about money. Money merely represents what they're fighting about. When they're fighting, they're fighting over um, control. They're fighting over value. They're fighting over priorities, right? The thing is, when you're single and broke, take note of this, guys. When you're single and broke, it's your broke. Actually, Matt, it's our broke because you owe us. But, <laughs> but it's your broke, right? You can spend your broke the way you want to spend your broke. When you get married, it becomes our broke. And then there are things that happen like, for example, you're planning a date night, you get excited, and then <coughs> the washer goes out, and then you come home, the brakes went out on the car, <coughs> and all of a sudden, not only do you not have the money to pay those bills, but your date night just went out the window, right? And suddenly, there's pressure under the perceived lack of resources, and so money becomes a big one. Sex is one that is a big deal. And what you'll notice is if something's going wrong in these other six, where's the first place it shows up? In the bedroom, okay? 
Women, do you want that Neanderthal troglodyte touching you um, if something isn't right in those other six areas? Not on your life, right? Get away from me, you beast. Okay? Guys, do we care? No, let's make love and then it'll be all good, right? Okay? That, that is just stereotypically how couples approach that. And so you have that issue that comes into play. That's a lot more, spend a lot more time on that one. But I want to go to the next one because the next one is really where it comes to roost, power. Who's the boss? Now, we all know that the man is the head of his family, the head of his wife, like Christ is the head of the church. But there's an old Jewish proverb that says, ah, yes, but the wife is the neck and she can turn the head any way she wishes. All right? This, this battle over power and who's really in control in the issue of submission is a very difficult one for us. <clears throat> we laugh at it because we recognize it. But really, uh, if you ask yourself, you know, how well does the church submit to Christ himself? We don't do very well at that, and we don't do very well within our marriages because this issue of control, I've said many times that control is our drug of choice in America. The sixth, the sixth one, privacy, is a surprising one because most of us got married because we were lonely and if we just had someone in our life, we'd be fulfilled and then we wouldn't be lonely anymore. But what we didn't realize is that when we were single, we could be lonely any way we wanted to be lonely. And if we um, were having a bad day, we could run home, jump on our bed, pull the covers over our head and pout and nobody would get after us about it, right? When you're married, it follows you into the bedroom. Right? And so you can't throw a fit the way you wanted to throw a fit. And you also realize that there's legitimate needs for privacy. That as a couple, you are not wired exactly the same. Uh, usually one person is the social person, the energizer rabbit, you know, bunny rabbit kind of thing. And the other person is more the processor, needs time to download the information. And so usually how that works is it sort of goes like this hey, I think I'll, I'll go down to the library. Oh, a book, that's a great idea. I'll go with you. Well, I was hoping to just go by myself. Oh, I, I won't make any noise at all. I'll go to another section. Well, I just kind of wanted to be alone. You, you don't want to be with me? No, 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 I, I, I do. I, I just thought I would go to the library to be alone. Well, why don't you want to go with me? No, I, right? Recognize the tension in that dialogue, right? Usually, guys, where do we hide? In the garage, right? There's, <coughs> there's built-in needs for privacy that we don't realize that are hard to negotiate, and so we create places and lanes where we can still have privacy. Um, I know one couple that took this to an extreme they would each take a 10-day vacation and he would go with his buddies and she would go with her gals and they would go off all these different places. And I went, wow, that's a different response to it. Eventually they had to renegotiate that out because that wasn't working either. <clears throat> if you get all those and you're doing really well and you're just rolling it, then the last one comes along, children. <laughs> and that will upend the basket and tip because suddenly now there are new wills in the home that weren't in the home before. And so as a result, then as a family, you're going through uh, these things. Think of each of these layers as a perception filter. In other words, what David covered last week in the area of communication, think of each of these as a perception filter. And you can see where 
there can be cognitive dissonance uh, occurring within our relationships. Uh, in English, that means we're not getting along. Okay? Just thought I'd fill you in on that. <clears throat> uh, none of these are bad, but you can quickly see how fast you can get entangled in this kind of thing. And you can see how the dance of our marriage can be thrown off. Now, none of these are bad. Each has its joys and triumphs. All of us have navigated some of them. <coughs> Each can go south pretty fast, which adds to the time factor because there are also seasons in a marriage. Uh, let's look at those quickly. Seasons in marriage, zero to two. Okay? When a couple divorces in the first two years, these are, by the way, where marriages tend to blow up as well. First two years, why does a marriage blow up there? I bought a lemon. Right? Some of you got that. Okay, good. But the first two years can be a pretty rough adjustment period because a lot of times we did not spend a lot of time figuring out how different we were and how we'd work things. We just figured we'd get along. Why? Because we love each other. <laughs> right? And, and then we actually got married and went, wow, this is a lot harder than we thought. The next year is seven to ten years. Right? By then you've run out of your own stuff. Also, usually what, ha what comes in this era? Children, right? <clears throat> and now the bills are the same, the routine is the same, the food is the same, the sex is the same. What, what happened to the fun? What, where did the excitement go? Wow, what, what did I get myself into? 15 to 22 years is when teenagers come into the equation, right? Five, uh, 7 to 10 is kids, 15 to 22 is teenagers. And that can be a, a, a major distraction in a home if they are not cooperative. And another thing that happens is if there is a problem in the marriage, often what we'll do is bury the problem and invest in the kids. And what we do, and by the way, this is a bad strategy. Okay? It's called child-centered parenting. I won't get into it because it is, uh, irritates the heck out of me. But the best thing you can do for your kids is to love your spouse. Okay? It's not to give your kids everything they want. <clears throat> and when you take emotion that is supposed to be toward your spouse and you pump that into your kids, then what happens is you hit the 25-year-plus mark where the kids are gone. And at that point, what happens? I don't know you anymore, and I don't want to. Thanks. It's been great. The kids are doing fine. I'm out of here. Well, people go, how in the world can you get divorced after 25 years of marriage? You've been together so long. There were things that started at the zero to two or seven to 10 years that they never took care of that now have grown into a monster that they don't know how to kill. Right Now, that all sounds kind of depressing. <clears throat> and the, the, the truth is, it is, if you look at the statistics of marriage in our country, what I'm saying backs that up. But added to the seasons uh, of a marriage, there are also eras of history that couples marry into. Um, and that everybody goes through. So like, for example, right now, uh, COVID and this whole thing has been two years. And that makes things incredibly complicated. Uh, those of you who went through the World War II know what we're talking about. Those who went through the Vietnam War know what we're talking about. Right? There, there's eras that you end up going through as a couple that shape and color your relationship. Added to this is we see the tendency that, uh, that things have a tendency to go wrong relationally due to the presence of what the Bible calls the sin nature within all of us. <clears throat> the, 
There needs to be a strong counter-agent to it, an antidote, if you will, to its toxicity. And fortunately for us, there is. The promise of the Holy Spirit and the new nature, the, the new man is God's rescue for us. Last week, we took a quick look at Colossians 3, 12 through 17. If you've got your Bibles, turn there. We'll look at it again this morning. Let's come back to that passage and pull a little more from it. It reads like this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, <coughs> humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Notice, first of all, the terms of endearment and affection that are used here. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. In other words, we are adopted. We belong. We are loved. We are precious in His sight. We can change our hearts towards each other because God, through Christ, has changed His heart towards us. And it's in this context, his loving heart for us, that we are admonished to have loving hearts towards each other. The term here used is put on. It's the same term that you find in Ephesians 6 when it says put on the whole armor of God. It's also the same term that's found in Ephesians chapter 3 or Ephesians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 3, a little earlier in this chapter, where it talks about putting off the old man and putting on the new man. It's the same term. What's Paul getting at? Well, what he's saying is there's two different arenas, two different modems or operating systems, if you will, that we can operate out of. In the Bible, they are called the old man and the new man. <coughs> it's also known as the battle between the flesh and the spirit. And it is spelled out what our challenge is in marriage and why it's so complicated so often in Galatians 5 when it says, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not carry out or gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, or they are contrary to each other. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So scripture identifies what creates such serious complications for us when we try to do relationships. Be they friendships, be they dating, be they marriage, be they church. It identifies the problem of the fallen or sin nature within each one of us. In other words, often we want to point to something outside that says that's the problem. Right? How do we do that in marriage? You point to your spouse. You're the problem. Okay? And sometimes we are. But that line runs through all of us. And the strong, strong encouragement uh, in scriptures to stay away from the sin nature and to operate in the spirit or the new nature. With that in mind, let's just go back to the Colossians passage real quickly and look at it again from that sense. Put on then. Put on means you put off the old man, you put on the new man. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and if anyone has, and here's the key word, what's the word up there? Complaint. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all, 
these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. All right, now this section is actually addressed to a church body. It's addressed to the Colossian church. It is not a marriage passage, but it works for marriage really well. <clears throat> Notice what we're to put on. First one is compassionate hearts. This is the same quality of heart that you had for your spouse on your wedding day. Think back to your wedding day. Remember your wedding day? Remember when you had those rings? And I often tell couples on their wedding day, when you look down at that ring, remember not only the words that you just shared, but the tone that they were shared in. What am I aiming at? The compassionate heart, right? Why did you marry each other? Because you had compassion for each other. You understood them. He gets me. She gets it, right? That kind of thing. A generous heart, a tender heart. And by the way, when it comes to that, we are not the authors of this. So often we hijack God's stuff. And this is one where we do. This is actually a description of God's heart towards us. God has a compassionate heart towards us. In Exodus 22, uh, in reading through the Bible, I'm in Exodus. And uh, I'm a little ahead. I had lots of time on my hands, okay? And uh, <clears throat> so I'm already rolling. And, um, but in Exodus 22... He tells Israel to be kind to the sojourner and the widow and the orphan and to be compassionate to them. Why? Number one, you know what it was like to be a sojourner yourself. But number two, he says, because I am compassionate. In other words, we're to be compassionate because God is compassionate. When's the last time you thought of God being compassionate? We don't often think of him that way, right? But God has an incredibly compassionate heart towards people. Second one is kindness. Kindness is the quality of being friendly, generous, and considerate. Kindness is often intuitively felt or sensed. Uh, it shows up in actions, words, or tones. It's the old classic, you know it when you see it. You know when somebody's been kind to you, <clears throat> right? Humility is not being or acting proudly against each other. One of the things that marriage quickly reveals is our pride and we're often quite shocked by our own reactions <clears throat> meekness is not weakness meekness is strength under submission and this is both in the physical realm and in the verbal realm guys we tend to be on the physical side gals you tend to be on the verbal side right patience ah we all love that one the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. I blew this one bat last night, by the way, royally. I, Abby was running to the airport to pick up her friend, and we just got her Jeep fixed, and it overheated on the way down the airport, so I had to run down right by the ball fields down in Seattle, and then I tried to nurse that thing back, and then Pam was trying to get the barbecue going. I'm on the phone trying, and I was just frustrated, and I realized, wow, I botched it. I was like, and I'm speaking on Sunday. Great. Thanks, God, for illustrating. All right. So then that falls to the next one because the next one's even more telling, forgiveness. Bearing with one another is the phrase that is used in Colossians. <coughs> and if one has a complaint against another, uh, has there been any complaining going on in our country over the last two years? Right? Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. That is given as a command, not as a suggestion. 
Do you think the spirit of complaint ever arises in marriage? How about in a friendship or a church? What's God getting at here? To bear with one another is the idea of staying in loving relationship in spite of each other's weaknesses. You don't have to live with someone for long before you can list off their weaknesses. In fact, this is exactly the ammo you use when we get in a fight. We call them throwing everything at them plus the kitchen sink, right? We unload 10 years of what? Complaint. What does that mean? It means we have collected a list of weaknesses, offenses, foibles, and we're now using those, using our inside information to defeat them in an argument. It's called a complaining spirit. And if you want to know what God feels about that, just reread the book of Exodus. Okay? It does not go well for them. <clears throat> we are strongly warned to stay away from it. In all our relationships, He, God, that's who we're talking about here, is warning us to stay away from the sin of bitterness and the sin of unforgiveness. And I think this is particularly relevant for right now today. Uh, Neil Anderson in his book, The Bondage Raker, on page 72, says this, and it's a significant quote. He says, Satan takes advantage of those who will not forgive. After helping thousands find their freedom in Christ, this is Anderson speaking, he says, I can testify that unforgiveness is the major reason people remain in bondage to the past. Jesus tells us at the end of the Lord's Prayer how imperative this is for us to forgive. <clears throat> Thank you, Jake, for doing that, by the way. That was a great correlation for this morning. But at the end of the Lord's Prayer, it says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And then he uses numerous parables to illustrate this principle. Why? Because sin is nasty in its ability to entwine us in its cords and hold us in bondage especially in the area of our hearts and our thoughts. Sin is complicated, and sin is also layered. Sin can become incredibly complex, and you can't control the consequences. Any of you ever tried to sin and thought you could control the consequences, and then it just out on you? I was the only one? Gosh, all right, awesome. Maybe online you can relate. All right, there we go. <coughs> but that's why we're admonished to keep away from it, to stay away from it. And this is where our identity in Christ is everything. Notice that all of these exhortations are to those who are in Christ, those who have found Jesus, those who have gotten saved, those who have claimed Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, if you haven't heard anything I said up to this point, please listen to this. Who you are in Christ, who I am in Christ, is the most important thing about us. Okay? It is the core and essence of our identity. That is what Satan is trying to steal. That's what he's trying to rob from us. That's what he's trying to take away. He's trying to say, this is baubles and junk, and the stuff that I have for you is real life. And it really comes down to who you're going to believe is telling you the truth, Jesus or Satan. And your identity in Christ is the most important thing that you have to guard. That's why reading through the Bible, you're picking up a theme here, okay? Pastor Steve can't always be with you 24-7. James cannot be with you 24-7. 
Even a good leader like David can't be with you 24-7. Guess what? God can. You can be in his word. You can be with his word. And it tells you how he thinks. It tells you what he values. It tells you what his purposes are. And you can track right if you're thinking right and you're thinking along his lines. And so just again, (coughs) how important it is. Coming back to Colossians 3.14, at the end of it, it says, Above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is detailed out for us in 1 Corinthians 13. And you can do a fun little exercise with that. If uh, We won't do it here this morning, but you go read that, uh, verses 4 through 8. It says, love is patient, love is kind, love is right, you know that. Um, and what you can do is you can insert Jesus' name in that list. And it reads like, Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind, Jesus is not boast, he's not rude, he's not self-seeking, he's not proud, he's not easily angered, right? You go through that list. And then you can insert your name in that list, I am patient. Usually we're dead on the first one. And what it tells you is that this is something we have to grow into. You don't just do it. It's not something that's given, it's something that you become. But that's a very telling little exercise. Jesus is love. And it's telling us to relationally connect with the person who is that quality. And why? Because love has the binding effect of harmony. Harmony or peace is the fruit of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. Look how this is laid out in the second part of Colossians 3. Now, if you're there in your Bibles, look at the second part. It's also up on the screen. But it says this. Look at how this just naturally steps to this. Let the peace of Christ... Rule in your hearts. For this morning, we could say, let the peace of Christ rule in your marriage, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you're feeling guilty, that's okay. I blew it last night, all right? And so we, we can blow it together. And what you've got to do is repent at that point and just get back on the horse and start riding again. What's the encouragement here? Keep your eyes on the king and keep your heart and mind set on his kingdom. And what a great encouragement that is for us this morning. How many distractions are there in our culture today? Everything's more important than Jesus. And I would tell you this morning, Jesus is more important than everything that's going on in our culture. Let's keep first things first. Let's keep him in our gun sights. It's so easy to get discouraged and distracted presently. Keep your eyes on him and let his peace reign in your life. Let his peace reign in our marriages. And again, there's no better way to do that. I know I sound like a broken record than to read through the Bible, all right? Spend time with him, meditating on his ways, his heart, his purposes. It's not too late, by the way. You're not behind. I know it's the 9th of January. Oh, I've missed nine days. I'll never make it. You could start right now and easily finish reading through the Bible in a year. You'll probably be done by November, right? And still make some gasps. So I just want to encourage you. You've thought about it. You're tentative, You're stalling on that. Just jump in and start Genesis. Start reading. You don't have to have it all figured out. Just read. And let God speak to you. You can start today. You can start tomorrow and finish well before the year is over. I just want to encourage you to join us as we journey together. And did you notice something else in this passage? Can we go back to that passage, that last slide? 
Look at that passage again. There's something that sticks out really strongly. Take a closer look at it. What word or concept is laced through this whole passage? And it's the word thankfulness. Did you notice it? Take a look. It's mentioned three times. And be thankful, verse 15. With thankfulness in your hearts, verse 16. Giving thanks to God the Father through him, verse 17. I've taught this principle before. When God repeats a phrase or a concept, it's wise to give it our attention because he's not just bored or ran out of words and he's just throwing some filler in. He's trying to underline something. What is he pointing out? He's pointing out that it's easy to fall into a spirit of discontent and resentment. Resentment is sticky. It's like tree sap, right? You ever go in the Northwest woods and get some tree sap on you and then try to get it off, right? Miserable stuff, right? Especially if it gets in your clothing or... ah. And it's just hard to get rid of. Well, resentment is the same way. Once it gets in your spirit, it's hard to get rid of. And resentment quickly turns into bitterness because you mull it over and over and replay it. And bitterness is just simply toxic resentment. This is true of marriages. This is true of friendships. This is true in churches. In marriage, like dancing, sometimes you have to recalibrate. You have to figure out what isn't working and find a new way to go at it. You have to regain your rhythm. And God is telling us that the way you do that is through forgiveness. And here's precisely where it gets difficult. Notice that Colossians 3 is a lifestyle choice or an exhortation. It is not a one and done. And neither is forgiveness. The disciples ran into this, and none other than Peter brought this to the Lord's attention, like Peter usually did. Jesus had just taught them about forgiveness and what to do if a brother sins against you. (coughs) And Peter was literally thinking what we all think when it comes to something like this. Where's the line? How many times? What if it keeps going? So literally, right after Jesus finishes teaching on forgiveness, Peter launches with this question. And he comes to Jesus and he says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? You can sense the irritation in there already, right? Like, this is getting old. As many as seven times? I think Peter's thinking, I'm just going to push it way out there, right? And Jesus comes back to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or another translation, 70 times seven, right? And we just go, like Peter, whoa. From Peter's perspective, he was being more than reasonable. Right? Seven times, you're out. How many chances do you give somebody? How many chances do you give your marriage partner? Seven seems way beyond the call of duty. They should get it by then, knuckleheads. Right? But notice is Jesus' answer. He says, I did not t- say seven times, but I say 77 times. Then he goes on to explain this with a parable. <coughs> we know this parable well, but look at it again. Matthew 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. For our purposes, just a million dollars. Right? Just put it there. A million bucks. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And so the servant fell on his knees imploring, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, 
I would use, pity is not a word that we understand very well. I would use compassion. Put that, plug that word in there. You know, out of compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Yes. Wouldn't it be a great parable if he just left it right there? Why meddle? But like Jesus, he does. And it goes on. <clears throat> but when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. 100 bucks for our purposes, all right? And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. So you see... The second reaction. Then comes the conclusion. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy, or again, compassion, on your fellow servant as I had mercy or compassion on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. By the way, and if you in the process of you're going to pay that debt on your own, you never get out of that debt. Just underline that point. That's called hell. That's a place that, that's very real. And Jesus spoke about it often. So also my heavenly Father will do, and here's the key words. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, every one of us, if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. See, failure, our failure isn't over justice with our fellow man. That's often where we land it. That's where it's landing today. It's important, but it's not the key issue. The failure is our inability to completely understand the enormous forgiveness God has extended us through His Son for the forgiveness of our sins. Great love, great forgiveness, great appreciation. I've said a lot, a grateful church is a healthy church. A grateful church is a generous church. Why? Because a grateful church is a forgiving church. On the other hand, little love, little forgiveness, little appreciation. Right? We have always been a great church. You have been a ginormously generous group of people. You did it again this year. Just astounding uh, what this little group of people can do. And it's because we have trusted the Lord. And we have trusted him in 2021. Was that easy or difficult? Pretty difficult, right? Do you think 2022 will be any different? I suspect not. In some ways, it may be harder. We are to forgive. Here's the key. We are to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. Think about <clears throat> how he has forgiven you. If you're sitting there this morning saying, well, he had to forgive a lot of other people a lot more because I'm really pretty good and he didn't really have to forgive me much. You really don't understand if you're saying that. We are to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. And again, I want to underline this. This is an acquired skill. You don't just do this in a day. It's not a one-off. In case you haven't noticed, it takes time to become like Christ. It takes time to become like Jesus. Uh, it's not instantaneous. Like I said, I do not know what 2022 will bring, 
But I do know what we have to put on for 2022. I do know how we have to prepare. We have to have compassionate hearts. We have to have kindness. We have to have humility. We have to have meekness. We have to have patience. We have to bear with one another. And we have to extend forgiveness. I will bet that we will be sinned against in 2022. Any takers on that bet? Anybody at home? Right? I will bet that... Were you sinned against in 2021? I'm looking at several of you. (laughs) Yes, you were. Okay? Do you think 2022 is going to be any different? This principle will be tested. Let's be an incredibly thankful church and let's be an incredibly forgiving church. In our marriages in our friendships, and in our church. Even if it's complex, let's forgive quickly and thoroughly. Let's keep our eyes on him and our thoughts focused on his kingdom. Will you join me in prayer? Father, I I would bet this morning that I didn't say one thing that was new, especially for my friends who have walked, we've walked together for a long time. And yet I've probably never said anything more important than what I've said this morning. Father, this issue, uh, we, I have personally watched bitterness and resentment and toxicity wrap people up and swallow them. I've seen it in marriages. I've seen it in churches. I've seen it in friendships. Lord, and, and it is uh, raising its ugly head. And Lord, we would ask that you would help us be counter to that in our culture. Lord, we pray that this would be a place where forgiveness is extended, that when people walk in, they would sense it. They would sense your beauty and your presence because of it. Lord, we ask that you would help us. I know all these things, and I blew it last night trying to drive that Jeep back while it was overheating. It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to be able to do it consistently. Help us dance with you well. Help us dance in your spirit well. Give that to you. Great hope in your name. Amen.